Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we some of the art and science of games. My name is Josh Beister and we have another great cast for you this week. We're going to be talking to one of the most notable names in the indie and just game dev space. He has been making games now for over a decade and... He has also done numerous outreach programs and help for indie devs and raising awareness about the industry around the world. Please welcome to the cast, co-founder of Vlambeer, Rami Ishmael. Hey there. It is great to have you on, Rami. How are you doing today? I am good. Yeah, it's great that this finally worked out. I think we've been planning this for, what, the better part of like a year and a half? Yes, it's been a while, and as we were just talking about before recording, my current record for like longest like wait to get a developer on would be uh, Fred Ritchie and or yeah, uh, Fred Ritchie and Paul Four. I may be confusing their names there uh, of Star Control, but was, I'm glad I'm not the record. You know, uh, I, I I know I'm hard to get a hold on off with all the travel I do, but yeah, this this whole thing has had me grounded, so I'm glad we could uh, we could fit this in. Yeah. Oh, and it was uh, Paul Ritchie and Fred Ford. In case they're watching, I want them to lock <laughs> me away for another three years of casting. But yeah, we are currently recording this in the midst of the pandemic that's going on. So for people like myself who work remotely, it's just another day in the office. But it has certainly given a lot of people so much more spare time. Yeah. I mean, for me, a large part of my life, as you said in the uh, in the introduction, is obviously uh working on outreach with developers around the world and it means that i haven't seen home very much over the past decade um so it's nice to get to know my house there's like <laughs> a little room in between two rooms that i didn't know was there and turns out i have a storage unit like downstairs nice finding out a lot of things it's it's kind of great <laughs> Great. It's always good to discover new things, especially when they're in your own home. It's <laughs> yeah, nice. But yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting time uh, for developers, I think, in general. Yep, and we certainly have a lot to get through today. And um, I can already tell we probably won't be getting through it all, but we'll see what we can do. We will try our best. Mm-hmm. So, to get things rolling, since this is your first time on the cast, could you talk a little bit about who you are and what is Vlambeer? So, my name is uh, Rami Ismail. I'm one half of Dutch independent city of Vlambeer, and we are the creators of games such as Super Crate Box, Luftrausers, Ridiculous Fishing, and Nuclear Throne. Uh, I am also the creator of Do Press Kit, which is a free tool that people can use to uh, make their own press kits for, the in- for their indie games. Um, I am the recipient of the GDC Ambassador Award in 2018, and I've spent the last decade uh, advocating for indie development worldwide. Um, Indie development, at first it was mostly advocating for indie development before indie was really a a popular thing or a a notable thing. And then later on it shifted to those indie developers around the world that don't really have a voice in an industry that is pretty heavily weighed towards the English and Mm -hmm. Western side. So um, that's kind of what I've been doing. I'm a public speaker, so people might have seen some of my talks about uh, being an independent developer, about um, some of my talks, um, You Don't Stand a Chance, and um, 
the one where I teach people Arabic. I've gone around the industry quite a lot, so people might recognize me from there. Um, that's kind of what I do, I guess. Uh, I make games, and I try to help other people make games. That's kind of it. And there's definitely like a lot that we can kind of springboard onto when it comes to the game industry, and especially about kind of growing the awareness of the independent scene. I started Game Wisdom back in 2012, but I started writing about games back in 2007. And it has been just a monumental, I think, shift in terms of the industry, just what it means to make games over the past 10 years. As a very interesting coincidence, I just did a a, a live cast yesterday at the time of this recording with developers of Brazil and talking about kind of developing the game dev scene in that country. And I have certainly been talking to a lot more international developers over the last five years. So it's definitely been, at least from where I'm sitting, things have been growing. So I guess for you, you have obviously done a lot more travel than I have. What has the independent scene been like, like as you've been traveling around? Well, I mean, obviously, like you said, it changed a lot. I, uh, I joined the industry over a decade ago, and back then, independent games, you know, like, people people forget that independent games aren't anything new, per se, mm-hmm. right? People have been making games independently since before I was born uh, in the late 80s. Um, and it, it's not as if uh, enthusiast game creation or game coding or enthusiast game development hasn't been a thing for decades already. It's only been a commercial thing mm-hmm. uh, for the past 15-ish years. Um, so when I started, kind of the the heroes that we had were uh, Pixel with Cave Story, and um, uh, Nikujin was being played a lot, and uh, Warning Forever, games like that, just like small, interesting uh, design things that uh, got out of hand by people who were just playing around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, for me, my way into the industry was, you know, I started modding uh, probably when I was 10, I wrote my first line of code when I was six uh, on an old computer that my, my dad got. Um, and I kind of kept modding until the late, like, say, like 2014, probably, um, when I got involved in this commercial independent project, these, these space sims, um, as more of a, you know, like I wasn't part of the community and doing some on the side stuff to help. And it was the first time I was watching a commercial video game be made, right? Instead of modding a game on the other end. Um, so as I got more involved with that project, I realized that independent game development was a thing that was possible. And then met up with my uh, my co-founder at uh, Game Design University, which, you know, I as said, I didn't know it was a job to make games. <laughs> um, so then realizing that that was a thing I could do led me to, to exploring school and then eventually... Um, starting Vlambeer with my co-founder. And back then, I think the independent space, you could very easily describe as 35 people that would hang out and talk to each other. And a lot of those people are still around. Some of them uh, have moved on to other things in their life. Um, but, you know, it, it was very small, this community, and it was very countercultural. It was very... Um, it was very much a reaction to the state of games back then, and it felt a little too safe, a little too close, a little too similar, a little too focused on the graphics. And I think a lot of the the people that were there uh, wanted games that they would argue were more game, right, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to sort of the narrative uh, weight of a lot of games that were being made back then. Um, so that's kind of the space where I started, this very tiny community. 
um, that would barely ever meet up, uh, but that was very supportive of each other, very um, would talk about everything. Uh, these tiny communities that would sort of knit together into a larger thing. And it kind of kept growing over the years until at some point it was just a thing, right? Um, and that was baffling. Like, it, you know, you, it was not something that we realized that indie games had become a, a movement uh, of that size. And I, I, I think I always discuss that part of indie as like now that, now that I know more of the history of games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would call it like the second generation of indie games because there was definitely a group of people before yes. that that was fighting those same fights. Um, but seeing it grow the first three to five years I was in the industry, it's very much about indie finding its own space and mm-hmm. uh, getting access to platforms, getting access to consoles, getting access to the press, um, getting access to like media. And then the second five years, basically the last five to seven years, has very much been about, okay, how do we take these opportunities that are now available to uh, people that want to make games and all of these structures and all of this access and all of this opportunity uh, how do we spread that around the world uh, in a way so that anybody who wants to make games, no matter where they live, can do that? Mm-hmm. Um, it has just been a fascinating. It's so hard for me to imagine. All of the things I'm talking about are only a decade ago, right? Things move so fast in this yeah. industry. Oh, definitely. We've joked many times on this cast, like, time seems to have, like, no meaning, like, for us around here. Like, it feels like a day's gone by. It could be, like, a month or just vice versa sometimes. Like, we've had discussions with people where we say, oh, we haven't spoken in, like, a month, and it feels like it's been, like, a year since our last conversation. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Uh, and, it, I, you know, for me... Um, it's been strange because Vlambeer took off really fast. Right? We started with a Flash game that uh, we made to make some money. And then we used that Flash game to make a game that got IGF nominated. So for, for us, our story evolved so rapidly. Yeah. Um, but it was also a very different time. The, back then, there were so few indie games and honestly, uh, comparatively, so few games being released that... A small enthusiast game that was good could generate a lot of attention and a lot of chatter. Well, nowadays, you know, people are not only competing against the AAA games, they're competing about against other indies, they're competing against established indies, they're competing about against Twitch. You know, people spend time watching games on Twitch. Uh, they're competing against a lot more than, than we were at the start. Um, it's, it's a very different age, and, and it's awesome. Because there's so much being made right now, right? You look around the indie scene and just the amount of stuff that people make and the, the variety and the the innovation and the the culture and the history that is in those games, it's just it's beautiful. It's yes. it's, it's unimaginable that this would be the reality a decade ago, but mm-hmm. uh, here we are. And it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's so incredible to me. Yep. And as you said like a few minutes ago, like at the start of this decade there were maybe like 30, 40 developers around the world in the independent space really making these games. And today, like every week I do a live show and there's a good like 40 to 50 games coming from smaller developers being released week by week, probably almost day to day now. And and I think I like what you said a few minutes ago about why this began. That was to make games that other people that the AAA market weren't making. And like for myself, I have certainly 
uh, gotten into the independent space thanks to the variety of titles. And, like, people who follow me know that these days I play more indie games than I do AAA, AA, because... I've seen those games already. I'm sure I can't uh, sure I can't surprise you with this, but there are a lot of like F first-person shooters and uh, grand-scale RPGs in the AAA space. And when you've played one, you tend to have played them all. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think one of the and I, I don't know if this is your experience. I actually wonder, but I feel that the the sort of new status quo with both indie and AAA being such prominent forces in our industry, I feel like they're feeding each other in really interesting ways, right? You've even in in AAA shooters, you're seeing innovation now. And when you when you listen to those um, when you listen to those developers, often they're inspired by mechanics they saw in an indie game or mechanics they saw somewhere in a in a small experimental game. I was reading an article earlier about. Um, Half-Life Alex, which just came out the other day, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and how it was uh, inspired uh, partially by um, by an independent game um, that was released a while ago that gave one of the designers um, a sense of uh, the game was budget cuts, but um, a sense of like the scale that VR can communicate, and apparently that was like an, an action catalyst for Half-Life Alex, um, which might be one of the more revolutionary games to come out in the recent years. And I think that's really cool too. Like you there's this amazing because it could have easily stayed antagonistic, right? In these sort of um opposing triple A. But seeing that kind of innovation in space based on all those indie games coming out and seeing how a lot of indie games are both responses and inspired by triple A games. Mm-hmm. It creates this really interesting um, flow of ideas that wasn't there before or just couldn't exist before. I think that's been really fascinating. I don't know if you see the same thing, but that, that's definitely sort of a feeling I've been getting from the last few years. Yeah, and like it's definitely been strange to see just kind of the cycle of when an independent game kind of breaks through that bubble to see it not only impact the AAA space, but other indie devs as well. Like, uh, I'm, again, like, I can, I'm, like, naming indie games, and I'm sure you've, you're all, you are definitely well aware of them. Like, if we look at the last few years, we have something like Discord Elysium that just, like, it seemed to come out of nowhere to really just explode in terms of uh, interactive storytelling and that kind of choose-your-own-adventure space. And... It's something that I think, and this is a question that I'm, I'm curious what you think about this, that for some of these titles, it almost seems like they can they just appear out of nowhere for some people. Like uh, Slay the Spire was one of my favorite roguelike style games in the last few years, and I followed that one when it first came on Early Access, but I'm sure people knew about that even, soon, even earlier than that. And yeah. It's just kind of like strange about like how some of these games seem to rise to the popular zeitgeist. Yeah, I don't know. It, like I always when with games like Slay the Spire and um, and Disco Elysium, it, the the thing I always worry about is was there maybe a game like it like three years ago mm-hmm. when people just weren't ready for it? Right? Yeah. Have we just kind of missed those games, or is this really the perfect storm of the right idea, the right time? based on things from recently because games take a long time to make right so a lot of things that feel like they're made exactly in the right moment 
uh, they've been in development for like a year, two years. So it's not not really how that works. Yeah, I know. And that's been something that I know I've spoken to a lot of other like developers and like first time like like students who kind of like, try to make their own games in terms about you know like that popular moment for some of these games because I've like I don't really follow too much in terms of like the massive game slices. But like for them, they always seem to report on indie games as like this strange and wild thing that you know nobody's ever heard of before. And as you said, sometimes these games just tend to be in the right place at the right time. And like even for myself, as a quick example, during the uh, Steam uh, Summerfest, or I'm sorry, the Steam Spring Fest, where they just had, where they allow a lot of demos. I played a good 50 indie games over the span of three days to uh, absorb them all. And even with that, I know I'm still missing dozens upon dozens of indie games a month just trying to cover them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible how many games there are right now. Uh, it's also terrifying, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like you're saying, there's no way anybody can play. Maybe that's good. You know, maybe it's mm-hmm. good that there are um, that there are all these niche where a lot of games seem to exist and be successful without being the biggest hit of the year. Uh, and there's still space for hits, right? There's still play- there's still space for Stardew Valley, for Disco Elysium, for uh, Slay the Spire, for any of those games. Those, those spaces still are there. But yeah, it's definitely a very different game. I think early on, Indie was a lot about being the hit and then making uh, all the money, right? And now it's more about being the hit so you can make enough money to make a next game. Uh, but in exchange for that, there's a lot more studios that are scraping by with moderate successes, which is which is nice, I guess. Um, it's definitely been, I think, a very hard push and for the independent scene in that regard. Like you said, and I remember this as well, like at the start of this decade, you put your game on Steam, it's going to be successful. It doesn't matter what that game was, it doesn't matter what the notoriety or the press was. If it's on Steam, that equaled blockbuster success. Today, putting your game on Steam is, it means nothing for a lot of these developers. And like you said, what could have been a massive success five to seven years ago could just be barely paying the bills for today's indie. I mean, I'll be honest. I think if our games, if Super Crate Box came out today, I don't think anybody would. Like, it's definitely a case of yeah. right right game, right time, right place. Um, I think that's one of the challenges because it is one of the questions I get a lot from students is like, how do we become successful in games, right? And I think asking established developers to answer that question is not the right approach yeah. because we know how to, we know what we did to become successful a decade ago, uh, but those things don't work anymore, right? Like we said in the intro, my my the start of my career was making flash games, um, and I definitely want to recommend you do that now because I don't think it'll be <laughs> it'll be very successful. Yeah. Um, but I think that the interesting thing about being a student, about being an aspiring developer, is um, you see holes that we can't see anymore, right? You see holes in the space and the landscape that we just can't see anymore because. A lot of established developers, they're worrying about, okay, how do we keep paying rent? How do we keep our people like uh, paid? How do we pay salary? How do we, how do we protect our brand? How do we keep people interested? 
Uh, those are a lot of things that we have to worry about that as a, as an upcoming developer, you don't have to worry about. You just have to worry about, okay, where do I see a game that should be made that doesn't exist, right? What game do I believe is missing from this landscape that I have in me uh, and that I want to create? And I think um, when you see the most interesting work that is happening right now, it's never made because somebody saw like a market option or yep. like a, or like a target demographic that wasn't being catered to very often it's just i wish this game existed but it doesn't so i made it right and pretty much every hit game that comes out at the moment seems to come from that philosophy but then also takes that commercial part of it serious right these are not people that are sitting there and just going like oh this game doesn't exist i'll make it and then they make a platform shooter with zombies that's just you know a little different from what is out there already no they they go and play other games that are like it and then decide very strictly decide that they're going to make their own thing not inspired by that but aware of the market right aware of their opportunities aware of the possibilities um i think that is really the struggle right now for up-and-coming developers from every conversation i've had with indies that or you know up-and-coming developers that uh, are looking up against that mountain of having to release the first thing, but also those that are on the other side of that mountain and desperate because it didn't work out or uh, leaving the industry because it didn't work out or, you know, successful because it didn't work out is that the sort of trends that I see are more about taking things seriously um, mm-hmm. and finding opportunity in a place with very, very little, um, with very little opportunity to spread out across that many people. Um yeah, I think that's that's more it at the moment. Yeah, and there's so much to unpack with what you just said there. I mean, we could probably have an entire podcast on that one topic, and it is very difficult. And like you said, I think this point definitely needs to be hammered in for people listening, that the games that were made five years ago, ten years ago, even just two years ago, it is arguably debatable if they would have that same success release today. And it's, I think, very hard for a lot of people, both in the independent space and just on the consumer side, to really, I guess, grasp just how much that goes into the success. And I think another major point about this has been just the spread or proliferation of game engines and tool sets that are available today. It's gone to that point, again, where I do uh, talks about kind of the reality of game development at schools and libraries, and I can show somebody who only plays video games, I can say, hey, these are public game engines, you can download this right now, if you have an interest in this, you could make a, a video game or make a prototype out of this, and there was no way you could do this uh, five, ten years ago. Yeah, for sure. There was very, there was far less choice back then. I mean, we we use Game Maker at Vlambeer. All of our games are made in Game Maker, and that started as a, a tool to teach kids how to make games. Right? It wasn't yep. meant as a commercial engine. It slowly evolved into an engine that is also commercial. Um, but yeah, the proliferation of things like Unity and uh, making um, Unreal more available, but also newer tools. You know, you have Haxi, uh, you have Godot. Um, so many engines are out there now that didn't exist before. It really gives people opportunity to create. And I think what we're also seeing is this um, slow growth of non-commercial independent work 
which I think is also very exciting. Like my my dream has always been that game development eventually becomes as accessible as taking a photo, mm. right? Uh, and I think I like that metaphor uh, because it's it's very simple to make a photo, right? You point your phone at a thing and then you press the button and it takes a photo and then it runs a bunch of algorithms and it makes, you know, it adds a little depth of field and, you know, it, it ups the colors a little and it'll do all the portrait stuff. Um, and it turns out really nice, but it's also not a professional photo, right? Professional photo still requires that attention to detail. It still requires that you are in the right spot at the right time, that you know how things move, that you know how light works, that you know how uh, light diffuses, stuff like that. Um, so it isn't just, you know, point your camera at a thing. That's what allows you to make a photo. Making a good photo still takes years of work. Making a photo that is, um, you know, praised still takes years of work. So... Uh, I, I always hope that games will get there because part of what I love about photos is that everybody makes photos and that everybody makes photos that are good sometimes, even if they're not meant to be commercial or sold, but just because it's a nice photo, because it was a nice moment or it was a beautiful sunset or it was a feeling they had um, and they ended up shooting photos. And I really wish for games to be that way, that you can make games non-commercially. And I think one of the reasons that has been so rare in the past is because it's so hard. It's so hard to make games. It's so difficult. It takes so much time. You know, we were talking about um, games from two years ago not selling now. Uh, that's a consideration a lot of people don't have when they start making a game inspired by something that's a hit. You know, if you if you base your next game on something that is a hit now, by the time you're that won't be the hit. It'll have moved on. So... Making games non-commercially is really hard just because it takes a year, two years to make a game of that level of quality. Um, and I hope that as the tools become better, as our industry becomes more accessible, that people will just make some games, you know, make a game for a birthday, you know, a friend's birthday, or make a, uh, make a game to say hi to somebody, make a game to profess your love for somebody, or make your game to communicate a feeling that you're having like all those things they happen um but they don't happen a lot and I, I hope for those things to happen a lot and i think your analogy to taking a picture is a very interesting as like one of the things that i've seen from the independent space as we've talked about that just the spectrum of games being released on a day-to-day -day basis is so wide like, uh, as I said, I do a live show every Sunday, and when we look at the games being released, it is just insane, just like what we find. Like, it is becoming harder and harder to find those standout games. And like we said, even a game that is standout doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a massive success. And I've seen titles that they just... They look like kind of like the first time project, like somebody just took a prototype and they're trying to sell that on a commercial store. Not to mention there are games that are being released that are just, they seem to be just like uh, the anti-marketable uh, games, you know, very mature, <laughs> very, you know, topics that we can't talk about or I'll get in, even though this is being recorded, I'll still somehow get in trouble if we mention them on a recording yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, there is... There is, like, you know, even those games, I'm glad they exist uh, because they're still games that people clearly want to play based on their sales numbers. Um, I think that it's a win still for games that we have that kind of content. I would, I, it, it, it's not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I feel like we could do a better job of distinguishing where those kinds of games live, right? Uh, or having a, a toggle or a switch that hides certain types of content. Um, but I do think it's cool to see that we now have that sort of part of our industry. Um, clearly, it's something that people buy. Clearly, it's something that people make. So it's good that it exists. Uh, but it, it is strange that it is now a major part of pretty much every game store just on the front page frequently. That's a little strange to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, like this is another thing. Like, could you have it like a decade ago? Because I sure wouldn't. It wasn't like the thing that I was looking like, oh, yeah, that we'll have that in 10 years. Like, we just, we'll, everything moved so fast. Yep. And like we've said, like for a lot of like first time students and like first time developers out there, like they release like, these titles. And in many cases, like I've played these games where it, it from a mechanical standpoint, is an amazing title. But there's just like kind of like there's like nothing I think like as a rapper or nothing that kind of connects to other people or connects to a market. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the game just ends up not doing well. And I, I've like for people listening right now, I've said the story plenty of times. But I've seen games that I've really enjoyed, and they'll have like less than thirty reviews on Steam. And yeah. like for those games, it doesn't matter how great the design was; those are still commercial failures. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's two parts that I I, I would I would talk about in, in in that kind of story. Right. The first one is when you're making a game to realize that. The game isn't. The game happens in the player's head, right? Uh, it doesn't happen on the spreadsheets. It doesn't happen in the code. It doesn't happen in the art, the music. It happens in the player's head. So you have to make sure that what you're doing gets in the player's head the right way. If something needs to feel strong, you need to make sure that it sounds strong and it looks strong, and that the damage is strong, that the numbers are strong, that the impact is strong, that it feels like you hit something. If you want something to feel sweet. You need to make sure that the sound is sweet and the art is sweet and the mechanical impact of something is sweet. Uh, You can't just say, well, this is sweet because the numbers are good, right? Or because the numbers suggest it's sweet. Like games are uh, like they're they're a complete package and every part of the game needs to work. So when I come across a game that's mechanically very good, but the art makes it feel clunky or the music makes it sound uh, broken or glitchy, it breaks my heart because there's so much good in in so many games where you're like, oh, if only they had put a little bit more effort in or if only they had the resources to build on it a little. The other thing I want to point out, though, is that a commercial failure isn't necessarily a failure of making good games, right? Because we're, we're you very clearly distinguish those two things just now. I think that's very important for students to know is that you have the opportunity to fail. Right, that opportunity exists, and um, obviously every life differs, and every opportunity differs, and every circumstance differs. So for some people, they can fail for years before they have to choose uh, another career or another path or another way to earn money. And for some people, they have one or two games. But if you are a student right now, as a student, you have the opportunity to fail a lot. Mm-hmm. So um, if you are a student and you are trying to get into games, Try and fail like now because the alternative is you do it later. I think a lot of students I come across they really want to work on their on their dream game, right? Uh, I still have my dream game. <laughs> I never made it, 
because it turns out my dream game, it's a very old idea. I was uh, 11 years old. So, that, so that's decades ago by now. Um, I never made it because at some point I started, you know, when I just started in, in games commercially, I really wanted to make it. Like this was a project that I kept pushing, but then um, never made it. I even attempted it once, but then gave up after a month because I just, I, I wasn't feeling it. And I realized just a few years ago that it's actually kind of a terrible game. Uh, it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, I, I designed it when I was not good at games. Um, so I had all these ideas of how it could work, but it turns out technically it's really hard. Uh, Design-wise, it's not that interesting as I thought it would be. Uh, it could be cool art-wise, but you know, um, this is if, if you're a student, that now is the time to make not that game uh, because you will probably find in a while that that game is not as good as you think it is. Uh, it only sounds good because it is the it's the thing that you've had in your head for so long as this shining beacon of what you're going to achieve. Um, I never thought I would be known for a game about fishing with machine guns. All right? That was not my intent going into the industry. It was also not my intent to be known for a PHP script that helps people make press kits. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely not my intention to be known for giving talks or traveling around the world. I want to make a game about an underwater sea dome with a broken piece of glass that was slowly filling up with water. That was my dream game, right? That that was it. And it sounds it sounds interesting on first glance, but then when you think about it, for, you kind of go, ah, eh, mm, don't think this is great. Um, th th that's not how life works, right? You you're learning a craft, and part of learning a craft is you have to become really comfortable with being bad at it. You have to be really comfortable with not being the best at it because um, you might be the best in your class or you might not be the best in your class. You might be the best in your school, or you might not be the best in your school. As soon as you go out of school, uh, the skills change. Yep. There are the designers that I wouldn't dream of exceeding uh, because their level of expertise and craft and knowledge is just unfathomable to me. And I might make something that is good, right? I might even make games that are great. You know, at Columbia we do uh, occasionally, um, according to the reviews and, and critical reception. Uh, and, Honestly, even I think some of them are pretty good. Um, and you're your own worst critic, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the the trick really is that I don't think any developer ever looks at their game, even hit games, even the most successful games, and goes like, that was incredible, right? This is perfect. We would not touch, I would not touch this. I would not change a thing. Uh, if you ever make a game like that, you are either incredibly lucky or incredibly ignorant or incredibly arrogant. It's it's one of those three. Um, I think too many people want to be good straight away. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of students want to be great straight away. And that's just not how it works. You get good by being bad at a thing so often and with so much determination that eventually you become good. And I like what you said about not deciding to make your game. Because that seems to be like for a lot of first-timers or people entering the game industry, the complete opposite advice. And I've seen this from a lot of smaller developers who get in touch with me saying, you know, I'm working on my first game. This is my dream project. I'm going to spend five to ten years on this game. And then they show it to me and it's like, it's not even done. Like, there's nothing to it yet. And yeah. Again, like we've said so much about this industry, it requires kind of multiple hats and like multiple skill sets to make something that can be successful. And I think like for people listening to us, like we're not saying, you know, 
don't ever, you know, make a crazy idea. But you don't want to spend five, ten years plus on a single idea and have no idea where that's going to end up. Yeah, I think I think that's it, right? Like, you, a dream game is a dream game because it's big. You, people don't have the experience to make a big game when they start. That's just it's just not how it works. Um, and every story you know of people that make a big game out of nowhere, right? Because we were talking about how games often feel like they came out of nowhere. Pretty much every game that came out of nowhere has years of failure yes. and years of other work in front of it. People go like, oh, Minecraft came out of nowhere. Minecraft was made by a person who'd been in the industry for a decade, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it just wasn't indie. Um, Stardew Valley came from somebody who was in the industry. Like every Everything comes from somebody who is um, playing games, making games, thinking about making games, and then very slowly, mm-hmm. uh, very, very slowly going from there. Um, because it just, it just isn't, it just isn't that industry. It's not the industry where you just come in and just immediately it all works out. Um, even, even though a lot of the sort of mythology of games suggests that my mythology suggests that, right? Like people go, Oh, um, you know, Rami, like he dropped out of school, which don't drop out of school, um, dropped out of school, started his studio. And then immediately it was. Yeah, but also I've been making games since I was like six, yeah. and I can guarantee you most of them were really bad, mm-hmm. except like just terrible. Like I came across a thing I made in in two thousand and eight the other day, and oh boy, was that embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, back then I thought I was, it was great. I didn't understand the criticism. Like people said it wasn't good, or the pacing was bad, or it looked bad, and I'm just like, oh, this is obviously great. And I really had to learn that humility. If like, okay, well, if somebody gives me feedback, that's actually really nice, and mm-hmm. I should probably probably appreciate that yeah um feedback is another thing that's really hard to deal with it's also really hard to give i don't know Mm -hmm. is that a thing you talk like students talk about a lot in in your experience about you know giving feedback getting feedback it's something that i hear from a lot of the developers i've been to and some of the ones (laughs) are on my discord channel and it is like for myself I don't yell at games. I don't scream at games. I will never say, you know, this developer was stupid or anything like that. And there are people who love me for that. But in the same vein, there are people who expect when I play a game that I should gush about, you know, this is the most amazing game ever. I have nothing wrong with it. And I can't do that either. And it's hard, I think, both on developer side as well for people to cover games to really be able to give and take i think solid criticism yeah yeah so the the, one of the biggest so whether you go indie in the industry or whether you go into uh, tripway development or mobile or wherever you end up um one of the skills that is necessary no matter where you end up is always going to be feedback and it's it's not just um it's not just receiving feedback, it's also giving feedback. And they're actually very hard skills because when you make a game, um, you get protective of it, oh, right? Yes. You get defensive of it. And you really want, like, when somebody goes bad, you really want to go, like, oh, no, 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 we, we, we know, like, we're, we're fixing it. Or, no, 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 you just don't understand it. Or, you know, whatever um, your, your automatic response is. And learning to suppress that and letting people speak and give you feedback uh, is really hard because a lot of people are really mean about feedback on the internet. Uh, also in person, um, and, and but other people, especially in person, can be way more than they really should be uh, because they don't want to hurt your feelings. So getting good feedback is actually really hard. And I think 
Um, what's important is learning to spot trends in feedback more than spotting specific feedback from individuals. Um, but to do that, you need to get lots of feedback. So learning to play test early, learning to get feedback, those are two critical skills that I think a lot of students just miss because their, skill, their schools don't teach it. Yep. And when I talk to developers, any developers, when I talk to um, AAA developers involved in hiring, um, that's one of the skills they always look for, right? Is how do people interact socially around feedback? How do people take criticism? How do they handle criticism? Um, but also, how do they give criticism? Um, so if, if you end up having to criticize something, there's also part of that that's really important to getting a job in the industry or to how you'll be perceived in the industry. And I came across this um, young developer, student developer the other day, and we ended up in a Twitter fight, which happens occasionally, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't remember what the fight was about, but I ended up checking out his profile when he DM'd me afterwards to say that he was a huge fan and that he was sad that it ended up a discussion. Um, so I ended up reading just through his, to his, through his Twitter profile, right? Um, because he seemed like a very genuine person, but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't engaging with a, with a troll that was just going to waste hours of my time. Um, so I went through his Twitter profile, and this was very clearly somebody that was very passionate about games, but also very aggressive towards the people that make them. And the discussion that we had wasn't that... It wasn't that bad. It was just the discussion, right? And it got out of hand a little, but like it got de-escalated. Um, but reading through his Twitter profile, so much of the way he spoke to game developers was with this air of, you're all idiots. Like, you're all terrible at your job. Like, I will do a better job. I will, I will show you. Um, and I just told him, like, mate, listen, you're clearly... You're clearly excited about games. You clearly care about games. And this is clearly important to you. But if I can give you one recommendation, it's take a course or, you know, training or like teach yourself how to give better, better feedback. Because if I was a game studio and I was going to hire you and I looked at your, you'd be out within a second. Because apparently the only way you can give criticism is by yelling at people and by cursing at people. And that's not useful. If you want to give feedback, you have to be able to, you know, on the internet, you can just say something is bad. But if you want to give feedback as a professional, you have to know what is bad. You don't have to be able to exactly say it, but you have to be more precise. You have to be able to give people a, a notion of where to look in their design, in their art, in their music. And it's a really hard skill. It's a really hard skill to give feedback. It's a really hard skill to stand there while somebody tears apart your work um, and then say thank you for giving you the opportunity to fix those problems, to make a better game. Yep. Because that's it is so valuable that you accept that feedback. And I think one of the best exercises that I've ever had students do involve pairing up two people that, um, pairing up people in groups of two, people that knew each other. I told everybody to sit next to a friend um, and then showcase their current project, uh, you know, and then have the other person just be as critical as possible while still being nice. Um, so they ended up having to rip each other's projects apart, basically, uh, in terms of feedback. Find like the every criticism you had um, without being a without being terrible about it. And um, I think that's an exercise a lot of students could could really uh, you know benefit from. It's just learn to take and give feedback. And like this is definitely one of those areas I was going to ask you as well. Like, what was like the number one like trap you see from or mistake from first time developers? So you beat me to it there. And 
it is such a hard skill for people to develop. And I think another thing that's kind of hurt things has been kind of the state or what we see out like kind of mainstream or just traditional game journalism or game coverage, where it is excuse me, very bombastic, it's very over the top, and that doesn't really help anyone in terms of why this game works or doesn't work. And like you said, being able to, like saying that something is horrible or something is stupid, it it helps to some extent, but it's not really explaining why there's an issue. And it yeah. is very hard to kind of understand that. And yeah, it's a... It's also obviously not good professional feedback. Like, mm-hmm. You know, it's just something being stupid or horrible that is just a personal attack, right? Um, saying something is bad, sure. Saying why something is bad, sure. Uh, but the sort of... I think you nailed it, actually. The, the way discourse around games in public is formed is around Twitch streamers, is about bombast, is around mm-hmm. Twitter. Well, I think, um, you know, back in the game development side of things... Uh, we will be really rough on each other, but it will also always be constructive because we know how hard it is to make a game. Yeah, and I think that last point is very important. The fact that it's still, I think, considered by a lot of people like, you know, like this magical element about video game. And there's so much work that goes on behind the scenes. And I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier about how long it takes to make a game and kind of like, again, how titles, quote-unquote, you know, magically appear in the world. That these are games that are in development from anywhere from one year, five years, seven years. And when somebody new looks at a game, all they're seeing is what is right then and there. And you have to be very careful, I feel, to ignore or not understand that these decisions weren't just made yesterday. This is stuff that's been done for months, years. There could have been so much prototyping and iteration done. Oh, yeah. And if you expect, I think this goes back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, like, if you expect your very first game idea to be a multi-million dollar seller, you've already gone, I think, one foot in the grave. I mean, to be honest, if you expect it to get finished, you're already <laughs> one foot in the grave. Yeah. Like, the the trick is most games never get made, right? Um, I think at Vlambeer, we've made probably like 25 out of hundreds of games. Uh, there's two, three dozen of games that we started on, but then just weren't good enough. Um, and we were fortunate to recognize that they weren't good because we were really in love with some of those concepts. Um, but then we, we fridge them. We, we put them away and then hopefully we'll come back to them later in the future uh, when we are better creators and we can actually do justice to that, to that game. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the other thing with games is when you play a finished game, that is never what the developer meant to make, right? It, it just isn't. Finished games are compromises. Uh, and the, you know, the PR part will do like, oh, uh, uncompromising design. They will never compromise. And this is the game we wanted to release. It's, it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. It is every time anybody says that, it's the marketing team. Because if you talk to any creative, that's not how it works. The way it works is you work on a game and you finish it. And at some point, finishing it means compromising. Because the way our brain works is very different from the way a computer works. And the way, our, the way our brains come up with ideas and the way our brains can fill out the space. If I tell you, imagine uh, a dragon 
um, in a castle in the clouds fighting you, then you've probably filled in that you look like a knight. Pretty high chances, right? Um, computers don't do that. Computers just go like, well, sure, dragon, what's a dragon? And then you have to go from there, right? Fight, what is fight? Like, how does this game... You know, your brain will automatically fill in everything. I haven't said whether this was an RPG, a shooter, a racing game, a strategy game. Didn't mention any of that, but your brain already picked one. 100% certain, your brain picked one. Everybody that's listening, their brain picked one. Making a game, everybody has their idea, and then they start working on it. And then at some point they realize, oh, computers can't do that. Or actually that thing that is really simple to imagine is really hard to make. Or yep. um, the, the, the amount of resources we need to create these assets is ridiculous. Or doing a castle up in the sky means that we have to do a bunch of shader stuff that we don't have time for. So instead it'll be on the ground. Or the game that releases, everybody takes a game that releases and then has ideas about how it could be better. But I can guarantee you that the creator already knows how it could be better. Because they've been imagining a better game for all of development, and they've just never been able to make it because it just wasn't an option. The The improved game that people imagine is is probably something that developer at some point has thought about. It's kind of sad, but also I kind of like the compromise that comes out of that. And I've heard that many times from developers, that the initial idea that kind of sparked this game may be nowhere in relation by the end of that project. And as you said, compromise is a very big point about this. And a few minutes ago, you mentioned, of course, feedback, playtesting. Those are key because you don't want to find out, you know, three years into development that nobody likes this game idea other than yourself. <laughs> and unfortunately, there are developers out there who they We've, you know, we've heard, you know, the stereotypical, you know, you're just going to be like the hermit game developer. You're going to be in your cave slash den for three years, never talk to anyone from the outside world. And then you're surprised when you release your game and nobody buys it because they have no idea what this game is. Yeah. Yeah. Marketing is also such a huge part of this. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, our conversation has been about game design. And I think there's so much to talk about there that it might be worth just staying on that yep. topic first. Like playtesting is also just such an important skill. And it's something that people start on way too late. Students especially start on way too late. Um, I, I travel around the world a lot, like I said, and I spend a lot of time interacting with students and uh, doing guest lectures and uh, mentoring and giving feedback. And there's this there's these two things that will always give away a student project. Um, it is a lack of accessibility or um, interface um, because they've only playtested it with friends and then explained how the game works while their friends are next to them. Um, so the game doesn't have to do that. Well, if I'm playing it, I tell them to not tell me how the game works. Um, and then the second thing is an incoherence in what the game is and what the game sees. Right? So the first one is a playtesting issue. The first one means that when students were playtesting, they probably start, say, like three quarters into the project. They've created the interface, they've created the characters, they've created the movement, they've created the mechanics, they've created all of that, and they never tested it because it wasn't ready for testing. And that's nonsense. A game is ready for testing as soon as you have your first mechanic. As soon as you can walk. Animal Crossing just, Animal Crossing just came out, right? Yep. Have you played it? No, but I played previous one. So you know the thing that gets me about Animal Crossing? Walking feels great. Walking feels phenomenal. The way your character moves their arms, the way 
uh, the speed, the camera, the, the space you take in the screen, the way the camera reacts to it, the sort of like um, inertia that your character has, but still very snappy controls. Like, it is phenomenal. The walking in Animal Crossing is joyful. It is great. It has been tested to death. That walking has been perfect over many games, over many tests, over many iterations. It has turned into what it is. And they didn't start testing that when it was done. They started testing it when it was a cube on a wireframe. I can guarantee you that you do not get walking that feels like that by waiting until the game is done and then adjusting it, right? And this is true for all of our games. It's true for most of the developers I know that make successful games, is they start testing as soon as they have something playable. Does this cube move right? Does the jump feel right? Does the... Um, is the combat interesting before it's enemies, before it's robots or cars or trees or whatever, they start testing as soon as you can, immediately. Uh, even if it's broken, even if it's iffy, even if it's uh, glitchy or uh, it doesn't look like anything yet, because it is important. It is important that you get these mechanics, these fundamentals, these basics right. Yep. So that when on top of that, you get the graphics, the audio and the animations and all that, you can make it even better. You can communicate that it works well. Mm-hmm. Well, if you start with shoddy foundations and then you add your animations and then you add your audio and then you add your, they won't be able to hide that the game itself is shoddy, that it's Definitely. broken, it's not right. Right. And like this is something that I say a lot when I talk about playability in the core gameplay loop. That if a game bothers me five minutes in because of playability issues or the core gameplay loop isn't working, those things don't go away. As you said, it's just you're compounding that with the art and the audio and all your aesthetics. It's not hiding the fact that at its most basic level, this game just isn't that fun or that enjoyable to play. And going, and I think what you said regarding the walking animations of Animal one second. Okay, there. I thought my audio went out. Uh, that's another really good point. That that to get that walk cycle, it's something that from the outside it looks so incredibly simple. But again, I'm sure Nintendo didn't figure that out in one day of development. It took them a lot of time to do that. And this kind of work takes a lot to make something look simple. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good way of saying it. Uh, the simple things are the hardest, um, but they also are evidence of really good user testing. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, like it's it's one thing I find in a lot of student games that you can just tell that the fundamentals started being tested much later. Um, and the other thing, you know, I mentioned was this inconsistency between what the game is and what the game seems to be. I think that actually stems from a very similar. Um, from a very similar point is they dreamed up this game about X then started making the game, realized they couldn't make it, so made game Y, but then still tried to thematically make it game X. And, um, I think that's that's an example of not being flexible or adaptive in your development and, again, of, of not testing. Um, but as long as, as long as people have the... As long as people think about their game less as the thing they're trying to make and more as the thing they're currently making, uh, there's still a lot of room to, to rescue that. And I think uh, that's the skill that people learn over time is adapting game ideas, adapting what you're making, figuring out where the fun is during development, 
um, starting with sort of a, a reckless disregard for whether something could be good and just seeing if it is good, right? Start, don't go in with assumptions about whether something is good or isn't good. Um, same thing with uh, brainstorming, another topic that we could probably talk about for hours. But um, I, have, I, have one, I have one exercise that I do with groups of students where we just brainstorm an idea. And I just really, every time somebody says, I just lose it at them. Because um, that's not how brainstorming works, right? Brainstorming is about getting ideas. And then afterwards, you can figure out what are some good. But um, the, the, the sort of necessity people have to say that an idea is good or that that would never work or that it is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I don't understand where that impulse comes from. Right? Because sometimes really bad ideas, if you talk about them a little, they can turn into really good ideas, or they can even turn into the best idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you if you kill them before they have any opportunity to grow, then they're gone. Right. Um, so the negativity is something that I think is worth is also worth mentioning. Yeah, and that I destructive think- feedback is always the the right place to start from. Yeah, and I think that, again, goes back to, as we said a few minutes ago, regarding how do you give and take feedback. And it is very hard. Like you said, some of the more, like, if we look at the last five years of an independent space and some of the most amazing games that have came out of it, I've said this before, like, none of those ideas would have been thought of as a AAA studio or as a AAA game because they're either too experimental, could be too niche of a concept, or it could just be something like nobody thought would have been marketable. Mm-hmm. And develop- the developers took that and or took their idea and they did the work to make that idea flourish. And like we said, the simplest things are often the hardest to do with these games. We mentioned earlier Stardew Valley. Like, uh, the developer, he said many times that he was inspired by Harvest Moon to make that game. And following that release, we've seen developers try and copy his idea. Mm-hmm. And they oftentimes don't end up being anywhere near as good because... They're just simply trying to follow that same idea without, you know, doing anything themselves. I think you said this earlier about being able to put your own spin on a design, being able to, you know, say that there is something unique to this game. Yeah, I think I think the thing that the thing that made Stardew Valley in many ways, because there were lots of attempts at games like Stardew Valley over the years. I think everybody was moon game for a long time. I think it was just he. Eric was relentless about trying things, right? And trying things to do things his way. And it made for a very consistent, very uh, genuine game. This is just a thing he loves making. And that doesn't mean that that is a recipe for success. Mm-hmm. But not doing that is definitely a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think for, especially for independent developers, if you're a larger studio, if you're a larger company, sure, you can depend on um and market research and stuff like that. And those are all very healthy to do. But if you're an independent developer, you need that passion and that enthusiasm and that sincerity in what you're making. Not because it won't be a good game, but because you won't be able to make it a good game. Because you won't be able to keep your motivation up. You won't be able to have the discipline to see this through. Uh, Because as you work on a game, you will, without exception, start hating it at some point. You will look at it and be like, oh, it's broken, or oh, I still 
on this. Oh my god, like it's been years and it's still not coming together. Or at some point, you will lose that intrinsic motivation. And if you don't have a thing that you're very excited about, you won't get it back, right? So I think it's important to make sure that when you start work on a game, that you really are genuinely, sincerely excited about working on that game. Because in a small team, you don't have the the structures that keep people working on things that they might not be 100% excited about that you might have at larger studios or at, um, or in different structures of game development. If you're the only developer or part of a team of three or four or five people, you have to care. Mm-hmm. You have to really care. Yeah, and I think one thing that I wanted to, like, speak about, like, being able to care about your game. I think this is another like very weird thing or another interesting challenge a lot of developers face is that as we said earlier, like getting into the game industry, thinking that you're going to be the next millionaire or billionaire is just a fool's errand. And it often seemed it often seems like for me, like looking from the outside in, that sometimes these ideas seem like making a great game and making a best-selling or profitable game sometimes seem like two different worlds. Does it seem like that, that way to you? I mean, they, like, here's the thing. Making a, good, making a bad game will say something about your sales, but mm-hmm. think of it this way. If you're developing a game, for everything, you get a coin, right? It's just a coin. And at the end of this, uh, for every five coins, you get to roll the dice. And if you roll the dice and the number, and you get a number, your game is a success, right? That's kind of how it works. Like, if you do everything right, you will make a good game, right? Sometimes you'll stumble into it. Sometimes it'll just work. Sometimes it'll be hard work and dedication. Sometimes it'll be a, like a literal fight with your idea. Um, sometimes it'll be really hard. But if you if you work at making a good game, you can make a good game. You can make a game that is genuinely good. But then whether it sells, that's a completely separate question, right? Super Box, my first game is good. Everybody says it's good. Everybody that's played it, um, that whose opinion I trust on design, says it's good. Uh, the people that played it say it's good. Um, it won awards. Um, it was a freeware game, though, right? It was released for free. If we released it today, I think the game would still be good. It just wouldn't sell, right? So you don't go into the industry trying to get rich. Go into the industry trying to make good games. And then the trick with making good games is even if you don't get rich off of it, you'll start to build a community that knows you make quality work. Right? Some people will notice. And it might be 10, it might be 100, it might be 1,000. Um, keep those people. Talk to those people. Interact with those people. Make them part of your community. And then make another thing that's good. And you know, really try for that. And then the community will grow because now there's 1,000 people singing your praises and promoting this game for you talking to their friends about it, spreading the word. And then maybe those thousand, maybe each of them will spread it to like five people. And now you've got 5,000. And then you make another good thing, right? And then it keeps spreading. The trick to making money in games isn't trying to make a game. The trick to making money in games is making games. It's plural. If if your vision for how you're going to be in games ends this game, it's over. Because the amount of games that will sell to the point of you being able to sustain yourself off of your first game, that's minuscule. It's almost non-existent. Well, the amount of stories I have of developers that are, you know, not rich, but sustaining themselves and having a life, 
paying for their for their rent or mortgage or whatever um, off of making a number of games. You know, when they add up sales year over year, they slowly build to something where they can sustain them themselves. That number is much larger. Mm -hmm. I would say twenty to thirty percent of developers probably use that model. Um, maybe even more if you just look at successful developers. Probably even more, yeah. but. The majority of developers uh, doesn't make right. Mm -hmm. The majority of developers that enter our industry do not have a successful independent career. Um, they might go work for another company. They might feel they might end up in uh, computer sciences or architecture or banking or I don't know what. But the majority of developers just don't make, it. Mm -hmm. and uh, that's really sad because I would love to play their games. Uh, but it's also just the reality of it. So I don't. I don't really want to. I don't really want to say that, you know, if you make a good game, it'll because I, I can't guarantee that. But I can guarantee that if you try and make a good game and you really throw yourself at it and you really try to listen to feedback, you really play test, you really uh, accept that where you are isn't as good as you're going to be. Um, if you approach your game with humility and sincerity, you approach your game with um, with confidence, but also with, um, with the wisdom to... Um, to see other points of views. If you work at your game, you'll make a good game. And I think, honestly, if you are going into that's your dream anyway. Like, sure, some of us might dream to be, like, rich and famous and known for, like, their work. But I think that the, really at the core of any dream in game development is that you just, you just want to make something good, right? You just want to make something that somebody plays and goes, wow, that was good. Yep. Or, um, or they get excited about or that they... We'll tell their friends about or, um, you know, that means something to anybody. Like, it doesn't matter how many, just anybody. I think the, the, some of the best moments I've had you know, and then having somebody walk up to me and be like, I played your game years ago. And I just wanted to say, like, I was in a bad place. I was in a bad mm -hmm. place in my life at that point. And your game just, it meant so much to me. Like, wow, those <laughs> moments that, you know, that like, I don't, you could, if people take all the, the all my Twitter followers and all my, all my, I don't know what, just the, the money, like whatever, if people take all of that away and I, ju I just could have had that moment, I think that would have been worth it because I can, you know, I can find another job. I won't be um, here, obviously. Um, but having touched somebody's life and made it better, um, that should be the dream, right? That's why we make games. We don't make games for money. We don't make games for fame. We don't make games for... We need money, right? Money is not the goal, it's the means. The opportunity is not the goal, it's the means. The, the network isn't the goal, it's the means. It's how we make things that people care about. And if you lose sight of that, you start making bad decisions. You start making games for money. You start making games for network. You start making games for opportunity. You make games for games. You make games because ultimately, that's why you are here. Because when you were young or played a game that meant the world and you wonder to yourself, how did somebody make this? Could I make this? Is this is this a thing I can do? Right? That's the goal. To have a kid sit down, play your game and go, wow, I would do this. Could Can I do this? I don't know. I mean, it's still my dream. Every day I wake up, that's why I want because I want somebody to care about them. Yep. And like you said, with regards to like having that game spread and reach out, like there are developers 
who I've heard this, like I've seen this on Facebook groups and Twitter and stuff like that, who will say, you know, my game didn't work because PewDiePie didn't cover it, or if only Markiplier played my game, I would be, you know, successful right now. And they don't understand that that is the uh, the effect, not the cause of these games succeeding. And as we've talked about, so much of this is a pretty much getting those fundamentals to work and if you don't do it or you're not able to learn it like like we've said like we've both seen our fair share of games that just did not succeed even if they were great ideas even if they were you know one of a kind original titles that you know a different day could have been a best-selling title and that game just ended up failing commercially yeah, yeah, it's I don't know. The industry, like the industry, remains a mystery, even to the people that are successful and mm-hmm. doing you know utterly wrong. Uh, we just have experience to not make certain mistakes. But asking people why they are successful or how to be successful is never. It's never like you know to to wrap it to sort of like round go full circle to where we started. Um, the trick is not to ask why people are successful. The trick is what did people learn that you can avoid. Mm-hmm. To save yourself harm, to save yourself time, to save yourself resources, right? The trick is never, how do I do this? Um, how do I do this exactly like how you did it? The trick mm-hmm. is, how do I make this my own? And how do I avoid the pitfalls that I could easily avoid? How do I make sure that I'm managing myself and my emotions and my resources and my time and my team and my code and my assets and all that? How do I manage those without falling into the same the same old pits, you know, without making the same mistakes everybody has been making. At the same time, picking the things that I want to take the risks, right? People say this design doesn't work. I don't think that's true. I'm going to try that. But to do that, I'll make sure that I'm managing all the other stuff to the best of my ability with all this experience, with all this knowledge of game, uh, so that I have the space to maybe have made a wrong, you know, a wrong choice in design. Um, I think that is ultimately the critical part is you will never learn from a talk how to be successful. You'll just learn how to avoid messing. And, you know, if people take away anything from our, uh, from, from this chat, I think that should be it is that you can't learn to be successful from a book. You can't learn to be successful from a talk or from a podcast. You can learn how to not mess up. You can learn how people approach the thing and then see how that applies to you your game, to your life, to your situation. And unless you make it your own, you're just copying. And if you're copying, it isn't genuine. It isn't sincere. And people will feel that. I don't know how people feel that, but people always feel. So, you know, people should just make make the thing you care about. Make the thing you believe in, but make it with humility. Make it with experience. Make it with knowledge. And don't just throw yourself into a thing because that is the one way that is the right way that is this is what's what will do it like no we don't know if you knew the answer it wouldn't be a question you would be certain because it would have happened make something you care about and then go from there definitely and i do i think again i want to elaborate again for the people listening like we said at the start when you started making games 10 years ago that is not the same market and we've seen, and like, as you just said, like there are people who will think to themselves, oh, if I just make my game like FTL, or I'll make the next Stardew Valley or Five Nights at Freddy's, I will automatically succeed because those were good games. But 
the problem is that for these people who don't understand is that they were good games at the time of their release. It's not the time of their release anymore. And as you said, you have to be able to look at these games and understand what do I want to make and being able to have the skills. And as we've said, sometimes you do have to fail enough times to have that one success. And unfortunately for a lot, for people who get into the game industry, sometimes they put so much on that one game, you know, the ever popular phrase, you know, it can't fail or it's too big to fail. And then what happens when it does fail? Uh, some of my, some of the developers I've spoken to, like Cliff Harris, uh, Jake Burgett, Jeff Vogue, they've been doing this for over 15 years now. And for a lot of smaller developers, they don't necessarily think about what's happening five years, ten years down the line. And if you don't do that, sometimes that future can catch up with you. Yeah, exactly. This has been a great conversation, Rami. And like we said at the start, like, this could have been, like, we could just sit here and talk for, like, two, three hours. <laughs> That's without having a pandemic going on. Like, with yeah, it, we could sure. just be here for, like, a few days just chatting about this stuff. But I know you, fun. yeah, and again, like, I love to have these conversations. And... It's just fascinating to talk about this stuff, and I'm hoping that the audience got something out of it. And like I said at the start, if you are free and you would like to do something again, even if it's either record or live, I would love to have you back on. That would be lovely. Yeah, let's figure that out. All right, so before I let you go, for people listening, do you have anything upcoming or announcements or teasers you can give to the people listening? So um, I'm working on So the things that I've been working on mentioning is uh, I work on Ultrabugs over at Vlambeer, which is our upcoming game. It's coming to uh, PC platforms and Switch. Um, that is Ultra Bugs, like bugs that are ultra. <laughs> um, I am working on a live-streamed online conference called GameDev.World, which you can check out at GameDev.World. And if you want to follow my adventures... Uh, mostly in Animal Crossing at the moment, but, um, you know, uh, my adventures anywhere, or just see me talk about the industry, you can do that over at twitter.com slash dha underscore Rami. Uh, that is R-A-M for Mary, I. Um, and then, you know, you'll be able to figure out what I'm up to. Um, I think that's it. I know we didn't touch on this too much, but I do want to elaborate for developers listening that you also have your free uh, press kit generator, do press kit, available for anyone looking for or needing to put together a press kit or press page for their games. Yeah, that's available at dopresskit.com, like doapresskit.com. Mm -hmm. uh, it's free tool. It's pretty easy to install uh, if you have an FTP server or any place you show uh it should take minutes to set up uh, i made it because i got bored of making our own press kits <laughs> and then a friend of mine said that i should make it public so it isn't the cleanest code uh but if everything's okay you shouldn't have to touch the code at all um a lot of people use it um uh, so if it is in any way uh helpful for you um check it out at dopresskit.com all right sounds good and Final thing, do you have any like to say to any prospective developers or fans listening to this cast to end it on? I think, you know, the, the, the thing about game development is if there was any, there is no good reason to go into games development besides that you care, right? 
So if you ever feel like, if you're ever stuck or you don't know what you have to do or you don't know where you have to go or you don't know what choices to make, figure out which one you care most about. Because ultimately, I think for all of us, we're just here because despite there being jobs with better stability, with better pay, with better opportunity, uh, we love the games and we love the we love making games. So um, don't lose that. Don't burn yourself out. Don't make choices that go against that. Just protect that feeling because ultimately it's the reason we're here. All right. Great words to end on. So with that said, for those of you listening, we're going to wrap up this cast. Rami, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you this afternoon. As always, Evelyn, stay safe and best of luck with what's Thank coming you. down the line. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Not at not a problem at all. So for those of you listening, we're going to end things here. If you'd like to follow me, I am on Twitter at GW Bicer. We have the Game Wisdom YouTube channel, our Patreon at GW Bicer, and the Discord, which there should be links to in the description here. Uh, if you like to support me, be sure to check out that Patreon as that helps to keep things going and get you bonuses and features on our Discord and such. If you are a developer or working or teaching in game dev and would like to come on for a future cast, please don't hesitate to get in touch and come back for daily discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where exam the art and science of games. Until our next chat, have a great rest of your night.